Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be here with everyone again, uh, enjoying this gorgeous Charlestonian fall weather. It's, uh, it's in the low 80s, yeah, that's awesome. No, um, whoa, hey, uh, yeah, I, I got a little excited there. Uh, but it, it's still, it's wonderful to be with everyone this morning. Uh, it's a gorgeous time to be together, and any time where we can come together uh, to worship with one another, to, uh, to sit and rest in God's Word, uh, to sit in His glory, uh, it's a fine time to be together. And so uh, I'm thankful for this time that we have this morning. But I want to ask you a question as we begin to unpack what the, this Scripture says to us this morning. And I want to ask you, what person comes to your mind when you think of a person of integrity? If I ask you, who is a person of integrity, who pops into your mind? Uh, For some of you, it might be someone like Mahatma Gandhi uh, from India who resorted to to nonviolent protest as a way to bring uh, change to his people. Uh, Maybe you're thinking of someone like Nelson Mandela who uh, you, he, who gave his life uh, in, in the, the sacrifice to, to fight against apartheid in uh, South Africa. Or someone like Mother Teresa who gave up all of her uh, uh, comforts to go and serve in India uh, for the, the poor and neglected. Uh, one of my favorite uh, preachers and authors is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, who was instrumental in the, the civil rights movement uh, here in, a, in the United States and just uh, the way that he gave his life uh, in, in, uh, in sacrifice to, uh, he, he didn't just try to bring change, but he tried to bring gospel change uh, to a, a, an angry nation. Um, for me, when I think of a person of integrity, I'm actually thinking specifically uh, of a moment that we had in our own home yesterday. Uh, and I, I didn't expect it at all, but it, it came from our little four-year-old, Mary Catherine. Uh, there, uh, our oldest son, Isaac, we, we, he's our little engineer. He loves to build these little things and leave them all over the house, but he has this horrible tendency of leaving them on the floor where they will easily be trampled by our very destructive two-year-old. Um, and so he had this uh, little magnetic thing that he had built, and he was so excited and we had just watched Jeremiah destroy something else, and so we naturally assumed, oh, Jeremiah destroyed that too, and so we're scolding him, you know, don't destroy the things that your brother builds. And Mary Catherine, our four-year-old, comes up and says that it was actually her that destroyed what Isaac had built. She confessed to something that she could have easily just sat by and let someone else take the blame for it. And in fact, in that moment, I could see that in her face that she was processing that, you know, I could just let this slide by. But she came forward because we tell our children that we value honesty, that we value integrity. And she risked a lot by coming forward. She, she risked retaliation from her older brother. She was risking punishment from mom and dad. But she knows that we're trying to teach our children Honesty and integrity and doing the right thing. And so I'm, I got down on my knees and I told her how proud I was of her, 
even though she did something that would made her older brother very upset, that she was willing to risk punishment and come forward and tell the truth. And that took a lot of integrity, more than I've seen from some adults, honestly, but the, just that level of integrity from a four-year-old blew my mind. And so, uh, in a way, I'm kind of bragging on her right now, but, but when I'm thinking of integrity, I, that cannot, it just it keeps replaying in my mind how proud of her I am of that. But in that moment, it, it made me question in the positive, but do we value what we say that we value? And I think because of the way that she behaved, I would say yes. The things that we say that we hold to, the things that we say that we value, the things that we say are important to us, I think that those are showing through and that they're starting to, to, to take root in our own children. And I hope that continues to grow. But in a much greater way, this is what James is getting into in this passage. In our cultural vernacular, he's even saying, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? It's easy to say these things. It's easy to say that you have faith. But when it comes time to actually show your faith, can you do it? And James is saying that if you cannot, that your faith is dead. Not that it's lacking, not that it's a little weak. James is saying that if your faith is without action, your faith is dead. And so the Christian faith is not just about a a statement or a creed. It's not just a, a set of doctrines that you hold to and spout off whenever you're in Sunday school or wherever you know, what is the uh, chief end of man? And, you know, like good Presbyterian, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's good to know those things, but if that is the extent of your faith, well, James is saying that that is dead. Because the Christian faith is meant to be actively displayed. And I think this passage shows us three ways. One, in the way that you or the reply that you give to others. Secondly, the, the Christian faith is meant to be actively displayed by the response to your own beliefs. And third, by the risk that comes with sacrifice. Let's pray now uh, as we get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we can come together, that we can sit at the foot of Your throne that we can rest in the Word that You have given to us. God, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place, that we trust and believe in Your Spirit, that God, that You would use a broken vessel like myself to bring Your Word and Your truth and Your power to Your people. So we ask that You would be with us now. And we pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. So I want to share a little dream with you. One day, and being the fact that we live in the Charleston area, I don't know how soon this day will come, but one day we dream to own our own home. Right now we're renting a a nice little town home in the Hanahan area, but one day we want to own our own home. And as I've gotten older, I've started playing, uh, toying around with gardening. You know, I I like getting my hands dirty and, and trying to keep things alive. 
My current obsession is actually carnivorous plants like Venus flytraps because they're plants that eat stuff. But still, uh, my dream, though, is what I call an edible backyard. I want to have, like, grapevines and, uh, like, a, an apple tree or something like that or, uh, like, a, some blueberry bushes, things like that, so that way whenever the kids start whining about how hungry they are, just go outside and get something to eat. But that's one of my dreams because... I, I, one, I love to eat those things, but two, I just I, I love the beauty uh, and the imagery of, of the life coming from those things. Uh, but if I were to plant those things, if I were to plant a grapevine and it were there for years and never produce fruit, it's got to go. If I were to have a, a blueberry bush, and I know it takes several years for them to actually uh, uh, grow to where they, they are producing fruit, but if I were to have that thing for several years and it never produce a single berry, I'm getting rid of it. I'm going to try to try again with another one. Because if there is no fruit, those specific type of plants are worthless. There are some plants that you have for their, their, uh, their foliage or the way that they bloom. I want those plants because I want them to make things for me to eat. That is important to me. The joke was that I love to eat. Um, but, but if there's no fruit being produced, those plants are essentially worthless. And this is what James is saying about the faith of the believer. Looking in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And then he gives a very specific example of if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying, if a brother or sister, he's not saying if a person, he's not saying if a beggar comes up to you. He's speaking specifically to a group of believers here, and he says if a brother or sister in the church, in faith, if someone that is, is bound to you by the blood of Christ comes to you and says, I am lacking and I do not have these things, and all you say is, go in peace, be warmed and filled. James says that your faith is dead. This, it, we, and we don't say these eloquent things anymore. If someone comes to us and like, oh man, I'm really hungry. I, I doubt anyone in this room would say, go in peace, be filled. No, nobody speaks like that today. But we do the, 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 the Christian thing of saying, oh, I'll pray for you. And I'll raise my, I, I've, I'm guilty of that. When someone's like, oh, I'm really struggling this. Oh, I'll pray for you. And so I, I've, I myself, I've, I've gotten to where instead of giving that response, I'll stop and pray for that person right there, but if there's something that I can do to help that person, I want to do that. But I think the overwhelming response, not to point fingers, not to, to, to throw blame, but it's easy to say, well, I'll pray for you. And then to walk away without actually meeting the felt needs of people that are struggling and hurting. And James is saying, if that is your response, if, you're, if you just leave it at, I will pray for you and then walk away, James is saying that faith 
is dead and it cannot save you. If someone were to walk here in this church and say that they do not have the money to buy groceries, how would we respond as a church? If someone were to walk up to you, if your own neighbor were sharing their struggles with you and saying, you know what, I know it doesn't get that cold here in Charleston, but I don't even have the money to get a a winter coat for my kids. And you were to just say, oh, I'll pray for you. Stay warm. James is saying that faith is dead. If your own physical brother or sister is coming to you with with tears in their eyes about how they were laid off and they don't know how they're going to pay their bills, and you answer with, I'll pray for you. James is saying your faith is dead. Because the Christian faith is meant to be a faith of action and not just words. Now, there might be some people here this morning that are saying, whoa, 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 slow down a little bit because that's starting to sound a bit like legalism. You're starting to sound like, well, you have to do stuff in order to be saved. And that's what I'm not saying. You have to be careful here because our works are not to earn our faith. Our works are meant to display our faith. The actions that you do are not meant to earn favor with God or to earn blessings from God. The works that you do are meant to display the favor that God has already shown you and the blessings that God has already given you. In fact, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, He's speaking specifically about false prophets here, but it applies to all people where He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And in that particular instance, he's talking about the people who claim to be healthy and good, but they're bearing bad fruit. But for the believer, for those of us here in this room that are claiming the name and power and victory of Jesus Christ, if we are doing that same thing, if we are going out and saying that we are bearing good fruit, but the things that we are actually doing bring no life, Jesus Himself says that those trees are good for nothing but firewood. And that's a very heavy statement to process and deal with. What is inside will be evidenced by what comes outside. What is inside of your heart and in your soul, the things that God has done within you, should be able to be evidenced by the the actions that you are taking, the things that you are doing, the way that you are treating and loving other people. And if there are no works, James says, not Tom, not the Presbyterian Church of America, not Two Rivers, James himself, the brother of Jesus, the the one who wrote this letter that we're looking at, says, 
that faith is dead. In verse 18, he goes on to say, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And there's always that tendency to want to try to avoid that argument. Well, there are other people that are, are doing that, those things. And they, they do it so much better than I do. There are people that are, that are out there helping the homeless. There are people that are out there uh, giving food to, to those that are hungry. And, you know, I, well, they're doing it so well, I'm, I'm just going to sit here and focus on my Bible study. And James is saying, no, no, no. Your faith should be able to be evidenced by the things that you do. Bible studies and and meditating on Scripture are good and valuable things, but if it does not motivate you to action outside of that Bible study, James says that faith is dead. And so it's not just the reply that you give to others, but he goes on to show that the response to your own beliefs is an active display of your faith. In verse 19, he says that you believe that God is one and you do well. And that references what JP was talking about last week with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was a common belief. This was something that every good and proper uh, Jew or person of faith in that time believed and held to, that God is one. And James says, even the demons believe that. And they shudder. Even the ones that are opposed to God and fight against Him and try to hurt and wound God's people believe that God is one. But it's not just an intellectual ascent. It's not just something that they know, but that knowledge causes them to tremble and shudder and fear because they know of the true power of God. And so James is saying it's not just enough to say that you believe that God is one, but that there should be some sort of reaction to it. In the same way that the demons shudder, What is your reaction to the knowledge that God is one? And I actually have a visual demonstration. I went all out this morning by borrowing this stool. Now, I can say, I have faith in this stool. Not a saving faith, but I have faith that if I were to sit on this stool, that it would hold me up. And I can can tell everyone I know about this stool. You've got to check out this stool. This stool is amazing. I can study it. I can know everything about where it was made, how it was distributed, the the other type of people that use this stool. I can tell you all those things. Not about this stool, because I don't know those things, but I could if I really wanted to. But until I actually put my faith into action, I'm not actually displaying faith at all. I can have all the right words. I can say all the right things. And I can make this stool sound very wonderful. But until I actually come over and sit and rest on this stool, I'm not actually displaying faith until I put it into action. And that's what James is getting at in this verse. He's saying that it's not enough just to have words describing belief. It's not enough to just say that you believe something, but that belief has to lead to action. I often like to, uh, to tell people uh, that, as, as I like to say, the, the vertical affects the horizontal. 
that an understanding of this relationship, an understanding of how God interacts with, with us, or how God interacts with you, how God interacts with me, will directly affect this relationship, how we inter- interact with everyone around us. And I can't help but think of the centurion in, in Luke 7, who has the, the sick servant, and he sends other servants to Jesus, and, he's, and, and they're pleading, come, uh, come and heal the, this sick servant. Our, our, our master believes that you can heal him, and so Jesus is coming. And before Jesus can even get to the home, he sends other servants out, and, he, and they say, our master says that he is not even worthy for you to step into his home, but all you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is speak, and that servant will be healed. And Jesus stops and tells everyone around him, I have not even seen this faith in Israel. In God's own people, no one has displayed that kind of faith. But it's because he understood this relationship. He understood the power and majesty of a relationship of God. He didn't just say that he believed. He didn't just know all these theological terms and and doctrines about God, but those beliefs and those doctrines affected him in such a way that they affected his horizontal relationships. And he comes and pleads to Jesus to come and heal because I know that you can. Just say the word. And Jesus doesn't say, well, you're not officially one of my people. Or, you didn't do this in the right way. Jesus says, I don't even see that own kind of faith in God's own people. It's it's got to be more than just an intellectual agreement. It has to be more than just saying, yeah, that that Jesus, he sounds like a great guy. He He was a wonderful teacher. He did some good things. I believe that. But if that belief is not affecting the way that you live your life and the way that you treat other people, the way that you love other people, James says that faith is dead. And so your faith is on display in the reply that you give to others and the response to your own beliefs. But possibly nothing is greater as a display of faith than when there is risk involved with sacrifice. And he goes on to talk about Abraham and Rahab. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He's actually kind of mocking people at this point. Uh, do I need to remind you of the? Is this like a Sunday school lesson that I need to remind you of these things? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now for a quick recap, 
this wasn't just a, a, a simple test that, that God was giving Abraham. No, Abraham was promised that his, his offspring would be a blessing to the world that, and that his, his family would number like the stars in the sky. And he has his first child, or he has the child that God has promised him when he's 100 years old. It's kind of a late start. And so when God tests him, in uh, Genesis 22, there's a lot of risk involved with that. Of saying, God, you said you're going to give me these, this offspring, these, these children, these descendants, and now you're asking me to sacrifice the one child that you've given me when I'm this old? But we don't see Abraham respond that way. We don't see him delay and put it off and say, well, maybe God will tell me something different. We don't see him haggling with God and say, well, what if, what if I do this instead? Instead, it says the next morning, Abraham goes and does it. And he takes Isaac up, and right before he's about to sacrifice his own son, God stops him and provides a sacrifice. And it says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because he believed God, he obeyed God, and he trusted God. And that faith was, was rewarded. Now, but the problem here is, or what seems like a problem, is the fact that right here James is saying that Abraham was justified by this. In verse uh, in 20, or 21, excuse me, it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? And later in 24, again, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And for those of you that have been to a Bible study or two, you might be saying, well, whoa, whoa, whoa. In Romans, Paul is saying that a person is justified by faith and not by their works. In fact, in Romans 4, he gives the very example of Abraham. And says, Abraham was not justified by works, that way he could not boast. And the difficulty is that Paul and James are actually using the same word in two different ways. Paul is referring to a specific moment of justification. That in the moment that, that Abraham was declared righteous, he was justified by God in that moment. He was declared righteous and holy. And the way James is using the word justified uh, is that his faith is on display. It, it's the way that he's been talking this entire passage that faith without actions is dead. He's saying that Abraham put his faith on active t- display so that way it wasn't just him saying that he believed, but you could actually see that he believed what he said that he believed. And in that, his faith was proved to everyone around him. Abraham's faith was not earned by his actions. Abraham's faith was given to him long before those actions ever took place. But those actions displayed his faith. And that's what James is talking about in this entire passage, is that true faith, honest, holy faith, It's a faith that moves. 
It is not just intellectual assent. It is not just study. It is not just mere words, but it is words accompanied by action. We see Jesus Himself display this level of faith in His own Father. Shortly before He's taken away to be crucified, He's in the the garden and He's praying because He knows what's coming. He knows that He is about to be betrayed and savagely beaten before He's nailed to a rugged cross. And Jesus Himself says in Luke 22, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knows what He is about to endure. The very Son of God knows what is coming. And because He is both fully God and fully man, He is terrified of the pain that He is about to endure. Not terrified in the sense that He is led to sin, but terrified in the sense that Just like any normal human, he does not want this pain to come. And the Scripture says that he was so upset by this that he's literally sweating blood. This is an agonizing, painful experience that he's about to go through. And at any point, Jesus, being the Son of God, he had the authority and the right. He could have said, nope, nope, I'm done. We're just going to scratch this. I've got another plan. At any point, he could have been up on the cross and be like, nope, this hurts too much, I'm done. And him being God, I can't argue with that. But instead, he goes through. He, he's beaten, he is tortured, he is nailed to a cross and suffocates to death. Savagely beaten, bleeding. Because he submitted to the Father. The risk involved with that sacrifice wasn't, is he going to save God's people or not? The risk that he endured in that sacrifice was, he knew the pain that he was facing, and he endured it willingly. He took your punishment upon himself. He took my punishment. He took your sins and had them nailed on the cross with him, and in that, gave you his righteousness. When He rose again three days later, He gave you His victory over death. And He keeps going. As Paul describes in Philippians, that He who began a good work in you will continue until the day of completion in Christ Jesus. That one day, Jesus will come again. Not he, we hope He will, but He will come again. And when He comes again, He's coming to, to, to truly and finally defeat the enemies of God and restore and redeem His people and His creation to Himself. That all the broken and wrong things will be made right. The heartache and the tears will be wiped away. And those who cling to motivation to go out and act to have more than words, not to earn those things that God has promised, but because He has already promised them to you in the first place. We, we do not go out and act. We do not go and share our faith in action in order to make God love us more and try and desperately hope to gain those things that Christ has promised. 
but you go and do them because He already gave it to you. That is why you are called to love others and to go out and act faithfully and to partner your action with your words because Christ acted first on your behalf. And so this morning, as I call you to examine your own faith and your own heart before the throne of God, I want to ask, will your faith bear fruit in the way that you reply to others around you? Will your faith be displayed in the response to your own beliefs? Will you be willing to risk sacrificing your earthly dreams for the one who sacrificed his own life on your behalf? Will you? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you this morning as we come before you receiving your word, worshiping with your people. We thank you, God, that our faith and our actions are not dependent on us earning your love, but God, that we are called to action because you loved us first. God, we thank you because we could never earn this on our own, but in your deep and amazing and scandalous love for us, you sent your son to take our place so you could call us your children. And if there's anyone here this morning that is struggling with grasping that, or if there's anyone here that's questioning why would a loving God even do that, God, I pray that you would bring those questions out because you're big enough to handle that. God, I pray for, for your people, for, for this church that, that you have brought together for your name's sake. God, let us not be a people of empty words and good intentions, but let us be a people that say words of hope and match them with our actions. We thank you, God, and we pray all of this in the victorious name of Jesus. Amen.